Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode with your host, me, Cece Suarez. Over the last three months, we've covered cases of family annihilators, which a lot of them, I'm not going to lie to you, left me feeling pretty defeated and just sad and gross. The good news is we are moving on to a new series all about survivor stories, and I am so excited to get started, especially with this one today. Now, many of these stories highlight badass women and some men, but mostly women, who as today's survivor says, were too stubborn to to die. And many of these survivors are the reason why their attackers were caught. In September 1978, 15-year-old Mary Vincent was hitchhiking in Modesto, California. She'd run away from home, and she had started to miss her family and was trying to make her way back to Nevada. Back then, hitchhiking was very common. Mary had a sign saying that she was heading south. A man driving a blue van pulled right on up to her. Mary recalls there being two other people behind her with similar signs as hers, indicating that they were wanting to go in the same direction. The van was empty in the back, and and yet the man said that he only had room for one person. The other two hitchhikers warned Mary not to get in the vehicle with him, as he was saying he was only willing to take one person, of which was a young 15-year-old girl, and told her that it's not safe. But Mary ignored them because she was so desperate to get home and she was so tired. So she got into the van with the man that she described as someone who looked like a grandfather. However, this man was not a feeble, innocent grandfather. This man was Lawrence Singleton, and he was a monster. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Down a Rabbit Hole podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Viewer discretion is advised. Mary had been trying to make her way back home for days and was absolutely exhausted. She made the mistake of dozing off once she got in the van. She woke up a while later and looked out the window and realized that all of the street signs indicated that they were heading in the wrong direction. Mary called out Larry and said, I know you're not taking me in the right direction, and you know too. Larry pulled over the van in the middle of a deserted road, and Mary knew right then that she was in trouble. She looked down and saw that her shoe was untied. So she started to think, if I have to outrun this old man, I need to make sure that my shoe is tied. So she opened the door, got out, bent down, and that's when a sledgehammer hit her on the back of the head, and she blacked out. When Mary woke up, she was tied up in the back of the van. Larry started raping her. From what she remembers, it was six times, and then he fell asleep. Mary was still tied up next to him, and she was just praying to God that she would die in that moment. When Larry woke back up, he started raping her repeatedly again. She asked, why are you doing this, and didn't get a response. Mary begged and pleaded for Larry to set her free. After continuing to rape Mary until the next day, and her still pleading for him, to set her free. She was saying that she wouldn't tell, just set her free, she won't say anything. He pulled her out of the back of the van, naked and still bleeding, and Larry looked at her and said, you want me to set you free? I'll set you free. He pulled a hatchet from his toolbox, grabbed her left arm, and started swinging. Mary started to fall, but she didn't understand why she was falling because she had been holding on to Larry's arm. She looked down, and she realized that her arm was gone and it was still holding on to his arm. Mary said that she was aware of everything. She felt everything. She felt all of the blood coming out of her body. She felt the sharp pains, and she said she felt warm all over. Larry then took her right arm while Mary was screaming and kicking, hoping that someone would be able to hear her. He started to hack away at her right arm next. This one was taking a little bit longer since she was fighting back. Mary was laying on the ground, bleeding, and she opened her eyes. She saw Larry a couple yards away from her on the road, flinging his arm back and forth. 
when she adjusted her eyes, that's when she saw her arm severed, yet still gripping onto his arm tightly. He was trying to get her arm off of his. Mary was still alive, her body had gone limp, and Larry dragged her to the side of the road and threw her off of the 30-foot cliff. She broke four ribs on the way down. Due to blood loss, her body went into shock, and she didn't know if he had driven off or if he was still waiting there or if he thought that she was already dead, so she just laid there for a little bit. Mary said that she started to feel tired and cold when she was at the bottom of the cliff. She just wanted to close her eyes and go to sleep, but she knew that if she closed her eyes, she would not wake up, and she had to stay awake. She had to go get help, because if not, Larry Singleton was going to do this to someone else. Mary used the dirt and mud around her to pack her wounds. She was trying to stop the blood from pouring out of her arms. And as she puts it, she was trying to raise her arms up over her head to stop the muscles from falling out. After hours of climbing and crawling, she was able to get back up to the road. And keep in mind, she has no arms. By that time, it was night and she could hardly see. In the distance, she could hear a highway. So by moonlight, she walked in that direction. In the distance, she could hear a highway, cars whizzing by. So by the moonlight, she walked in the direction of the sound, knowing that eventually she'll run across cars, someone, a road, someone that could help her. Two men driving a red convertible started driving towards her, and she screamed for them to help her. They took one look at her and just kept driving. What I think speaks to Mary's character, not only her arm still gripping on to Larry's, even though it's been cut off, but more so the fact that when she retells the story, she didn't blame those people. She said, I probably looked terrifying. It was dark out. I was covered in blood and mud. I had no arms. I was screaming. She said she probably looked like some type of monster from a horror movie. So she doesn't blame those people for driving off which I definitely would blame them for driving off. So so Mary is a much better woman than I am. By this time, she'd already walked over three miles and she was sure that she wasn't going to see another car. She'd started to lose hope a little bit. But to her surprise, a couple on their honeymoon who had gotten lost pulled over, got her into their old truck, wrapped her in towels, and peeled out. They drove her to the closest phone to get help and then a rescue helicopter came and Mary was airlifted to the hospital. Now, the doctors that tended to Mary said that she had lost over half of the blood in her body and then the remaining blood actually had reached a toxic level and that absolutely she should not have survived. Mary says that the only reason her body was able to withstand all of this was because she was so desperate to live. The description of Larry that Mary gave to the authorities was so detailed and, and so accurate that when the sketch was made public, Larry's neighbor immediately recognized him and turned him in. Round of applause for that neighbor real quick. Now, one thing that I think that shows truly how delusional Larry is, there's many things, obviously. However, this tiny little aspect is that he tried to say that he wasn't the only person in the car and that there was another guy named Larry who looks just like him, who was also in the car, and that's the person who committed the crimes against Mary. So he really tried to just pull an Uno reverse on them and say, no, that wasn't me. That was the other Larry who happens to look exactly like me. No relation, though. He was arrested and would stand trial for his grotesque crimes six months after he was arrested. And Mary faced him in court where her emotional testimony put him behind bars. And by this time, she had been fitted 
uh, for, I, I want to call them prosthetics, but they, I'm obviously, I'm pretty sure that's what they're still called, but they're, they're like hooks kind of. So she was fitted for those and actually pointed to him in the courtroom, which obviously added to the emotional aspect of her testimony, saying that he was the one who did this to her. When she passed by him in the courthouse, he whispered and said, if it's the last thing I'll do, I'll finish the job. Really just ensuring that Mary was going to live in fear for the rest of her life, which is awful. Now, tragically, the laws at the time were so lenient, the maximum penalty Singleton could receive was 14 years in prison, which is insane because he had literally dismembered and tried to kill he tried to kill her, amongst other things, but that was the punishment that he got after being found guilty of kidnapping, attempted murder, rape, and a series of other crimes. Mary would go on to win a civil judgment of $2.56 million in a civil case against Singleton, but of course she was unable to collect because he had absolutely nothing to his name. What you're feeling right now is exactly what the general public and Mary felt with the outcome, understandably. Everyone was upset. After what happens, the sentence felt way too short and it feels like justice absolutely was not served. But this would lead to the passing of the Singleton Bill, which ceases the early release of criminals who used torture in their crime and allowed for a 25-to-life sentence as well. Lawrence Singleton felt that he was the victim in the attack against Mary and decided to sue her while he was in jail. He claimed he considered the alleged events and he just knew that he was not guilty. He said he remembered Mary threatening to accuse him of rape and that she had threatened him by waving a stick at him. A stick. Absolutely insane. He said that this was the reason that he became violent and he was saying that he was mistreated by the courts. He filed the complaint and he sued Mary for forcible kidnap for the purposes of robbery. So he, again, tried to pull the Uno reverse and say, no, 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 I didn't kidnap and rape and attempt to murder you. You kidnapped me and tried to rob me and therefore I was doing self-defense as one does, you know, because a stick is life-threatening. And obviously that never, that never happened. Again, just a delusion he made up in his head. Um, now, he said that he could, now he said that he had sympathy for Mary, claiming that he almost vomited three times and couldn't sleep for several nights after he submitted his complaint. And obviously, that suit never gained any traction, and the courts dismissed it immediately because he is completely delusional. Now, while in prison, Larry was a teacher's aide and a model inmate. So due to his good behavior, he was released after only serving eight of his 14-year sentence. I know, it's infuriating. Right before his release from the prison, the psychiatrist that he had been working with said, quote, because he is so out of touch with his hostility and anger, he remains an elevated threat to others' safety inside and outside of prison, end quote. But of course, he was still released because our justice system is and always has been completely in shambles. Now, once paroled, locals of multiple cities 
protested since they didn't want this absolute goblin of a man living within their communities, and rightfully so. After unsuccessfully attempting to relocate him to multiple different areas, it was decided that Larry would live on the grounds of San Quentin, the prison, in a trailer. Now, he eventually was allowed to move back to his native state of Florida, where he continued to be a nuisance. Um, this part's kind of weird. So in the 1990s, he was convicted of theft twice, serving a 60-day sentence. Both charges were for really small, inexpensive objects. Um, one, I believe, was a, like, a I think it was a disposable camera or something like that. And then the other one was like a hat. But both both of them were things that were under $30. It's very, it was very weird that he did that. But I think that just shows that he just can't control himself. On Wednesday, February 19th, 1997, 69-year-old Lawrence Singleton began his day by installing a drain pipe alongside the newly renovated home in Orient Park, a neighborhood of East Tampa. Yes, I know. I live in Tampa as well. And this is actually a home that his brother bought him. Bill, as he was calling himself now, yep, he just decided to completely rebrand himself, was the ideal neighbor. His lawn was manicured to perfection. He brought steaks to his neighbors, and he let their kids play with his new Rottweiler puppy. He was even a regular in the bowling league, and his fellow bowlers said that he was a friendly guy and a good bowler. Some of his bowling buddies had heard of his past, but Bill, air quotes there because we know that's not your name, assured them that he had been framed. That Wednesday evening, a local house painter had noticed a horrific scene unfolding inside a nearby residence. He quickly called police and described to them the disturbing details. A nude man covered in blood was repeatedly stabbing a naked woman who laid motionless on the sofa. He told the 911 dispatcher that he could hear bones crunching after each stab. The nude man who continued on with his stabbing frenzy was none other than Bill, or as we know him, Lawrence Singleton. When a Hillsborough County Sheriff's deputy arrived, Singleton answered the door smeared with blood. He told the officer that he had cut himself chopping vegetables. Then his phone rang, and as Larry went into the house to answer the phone, the deputy peeked around the door and saw the woman's nude body, covered in blood, on the living room floor. This woman was 31-year-old Roxanne Hayes. She was a mother of three and doing what she could so that she could support her family. She had agreed to meet with Larry for $20. Larry would go on to claim that she tried to take more money than agreed upon from his wallet, and a struggle ensued. While he was trying to get the knife from her, she wound up being stabbed multiple times. They framed me the first time, but this time I did it, Larry confessed as he was led away. However, by the time he was appointed a public defender, he had changed his story completely, and he ended up pleading not guilty. Shortly after the incident, Larry attempted to take his own life but was unsuccessful, and he was housed in the psychiatric hospital for some time before heading to jail to await trial. Roxanne Hayes worked from the same park bench every day while her children, 11, 7, and 3, were in school and daycare. She was straight up about what she did, one deputy said. Scott Bruce told the St. Pete Times, quote, she was on the street for her kids, end quote. And another sex worker once asked Hayes how she spent her money, and she said, rent and diapers. 
Bruce said that it was unusual for a professional such as Hayes to agree to go to the home of some John, to which another sex worker suggested, you don't think a 70-year-old man is going to stab you to death. And ain't that the truth? Now, it seems like he really did lean into that because if you remember, that's exactly what really disarmed Mary Vincent enough to at least get in the car. There were so many times that Larry slipped through the cracks. Two weeks before murdering Roxanne on February 1st, he tried to unalive himself by attaching a dryer hose to the exhaust pipe of his van. And I guess he didn't do this in his garage or maybe he didn't have a garage. I know a lot of Tampa homes, older ones especially, don't have garages. But it sounds like he did this just like in his driveway or on the road because a young couple in the neighborhood saw him and saved his life. Now, he was briefly committed to St. Joe's Psychiatric Care Center, which, fun fact, me along with my husband and all of my siblings and my mom and my dad were all born at St. Joe's Women's Hospital, which is right across the street from St. Joe's Psychiatric Care Center. Um, so he was there and his family wanted him to be Baker Acted. A commitment petition was drafted and, and two of St. Joe's psychiatrists signed a statement swearing he, quote, posed a real and present threat of substantial harm to his well-being, end quote. Now, from my understanding, when you're Baker Acted, it's because you pose a threat to yourself and or others with some type of like mental illness involved. And that's just from the past almost 10 years of my husband telling me about people he's had to Baker Act being in law enforcement. So I've, I really don't understand how he was just able to check himself out. But but then again, I mean, I guess he was there for about 10 days because on February 10th, he signed himself out of the psychiatric care center. And so I'm thinking that it was kind of one step further than just being Baker Acted because they can only hold you for so long. Um, but I'm thinking that it was so that they could legally hold him and so that he wouldn't be able to sign himself out or maybe even longer. The court hearing for that was on February 13th. He signed himself out on February 10th and they couldn't hold him without a court order. And then for some reason, the hearing for that was canceled. And then nine days later, he brought Roxanne into his home. Now, Mary heard about this and flew from California to Florida to testify on behalf of Roxanne and to ensure that this would never happen again. She went into great detail on what happened to her and painted a very clear picture on why the ultimate punishment should be handed down to Singleton. She said, I was raped. I had my arms cut off. He used a hatchet and he left me to die. However, Lawrence Singleton's defense claimed that he had never meant to kill Roxanne. It was just a mistake due to too much emotion at the time. Are you shaking your head? I'm shaking my head too. That's, that's not good. That is a horrible defense. It took the jury four hours to come to a decision. And of course, they found him guilty. Now, since this happened in Florida, and we don't mess around here, on April 14th, 1998, Singleton was given the death sentence for the senseless and horrific murder of Roxanne Hayes. Lawrence seemed completely unfazed and didn't seem to care when Judge Anderson passed down the sentence on him and said this was an unprovoked, senseless killing of a human being. Now, there's not much found about his family, like literally nothing, and I am okay with that. I want, obviously, and I, I think they should be given their privacy. I mean, could you imagine if you were related to this monster? I could not. I would want to pretend that I was not related to them. Mary wasn't the only person who feared Larry. His daughter, Deborah, spoke about it at length, 
all about the nature of her father and what he was like as a dad. When she found out that he was getting out of jail, she also fled and hid, asking law enforcement if there was any way they could keep him behind bars for longer. Considering how he had used his status as a father to lure Mary into his car, he had reference to Mary right before she got in the car. Oh, I have a daughter around your age, which is so creepy. So that really makes sense. In her own words, I asked California prison personnel what could be done to keep him in longer, and I was told there was nothing. They suggested I obtain a restraining order at the time of his release. Sorry, but I mean this quite sarcastically. I tell you, he is a danger. I said that before his first crime. I've changed my name multiple times, and I am moving across state lines. And you all suggest a piece of paper that will tell him exactly where I am, what my name is, and not to come within, say, 300 feet of me? Deborah's concerns were completely valid as her father continued to commit crimes against women after his release. On December 28, 2001, Lawrence Singleton was serving his sentence and awaiting the death penalty when he died at age 74 from cancer. Mary said that she didn't feel relief when Larry died on death row. She felt like she was robbed of knowing why he did it and what was going on in his head. Mary is married and has two sons and says that they keep her going. Prior to the attack, she was a very talented dancer, and now her creative outlet is art. She enjoys painting. She says that she never takes life for granted and enjoys life more than most people for that reason. Now, many people believe that Mary and Roxanne were not Larry's only victims. He could be responsible for a dozen or more murders. And I am absolutely one of those people. With how horrific and violent both of these crimes were and how old Larry was, at the time of committing them, I think we just got him at the butt end of his potential career as a murderer. I think he had a very, very long history of killing. Now, Larry was a merchant marine or a merchant seaman, if you will, meaning he worked on uh, shipping vessels, you know, the large, the big, real big ships with the shipping containers on them, like that one that got stuck in that one canal and messed up messed up our delivery dates for like a year. Remember that one? So he worked on one of those. So he was presumably traveling a lot for work, going from port to port. And there, like I said, isn't much known about his personal life other than that little snippet from his daughter. So I think that Mary Vincent was his only survivor. And that's really the only reason we even know about any, any others prior to. I do think that Mary Vincent was his only survivor. And that's why we don't know about any others prior to obviously, Roxanne and Mary. And that is it for today's video. That is the story of Mary Benson in all of her badassery. She is absolutely amazing. This is one of my favorite stories. Next week's episode, uh, episode 10, will actually be my tip-top favorite survivor story ever. I'm hoping to actually meet this person and uh, talk to her before I recorded the podcast, so I might have to push out that episode and make it like episode 11 or 12 instead. But I am very excited to hopefully be able to talk to her. If you have any suggestions on which survivor stories you would like me to do an episode on, please send over a DM to Down a Rabbit Hole Podcast on Instagram, or you can email me at Down a Rabbit Hole Podcast at gmail.com. Of course, all of that is in the description box, the show notes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review. Check out uh, the pictures that go along with this case over on the Instagram as well. I've been trying to get some real good ones for you over there. And then obviously in the caption, I've been you know, pretty good at like describing each slide. And I think it really does help when you're able to kind of put, you know, faces to names and locations and things like that. So I will see y'all in my next episode. 
Remember, don't ignore red flags, stay spicy, and I'll see you next time. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Down a Rabbit Hole with CC Suarez. Please follow us on Instagram at Down a Rabbit Hole Podcast. And if you have any suggestions, anything you'd like to share, we can be contacted at Down a Rabbit Hole Podcast at gmail.com. All of that is linked in the show notes wherever you listen to your podcasts, and then also in the description box on the cc suarez youtube channel as well all sources for this episode of course are linked down below if you do have a chance please go ahead and rate and review on spotify on apple podcasts wherever you get your podcasts the down a rabbit hole podcast is produced written and researched by chelsea suarez and tony suarez executive producer Wiggum Suarez. Also, as always, a huge thank you to our channel members on YouTube. Without you, this podcast would not even exist. So thank you so much to our YouTube channel members. If you would like to become a YouTube channel member, go ahead and go over to the CC Suarez YouTube channel and click the join button right next to the subscribe button. As always, we appreciate you. Please pay attention to red flags and stay spicy, and we'll see you in our next episode.